I'd like to begin tonight with a quote from the Buddha. It's a little bit of a long quote, but it's, it's been the quote, probably my favorite quote this year. So a few of you have heard it, but it's a beautiful quote. It's the Buddha talking about his life, you know, kind of a real person talking about what happened to him. And he's talking to the monks and nuns, and he's saying, well, how, how was it for him? Where did he come from? And he says, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. His father was a little kind of overprotective of him and took care of him quite well. You know, the story goes his father didn't want him to leave. That it had been foretold at his birth that he would either be a great king or a great spiritual teacher. And his father wanted to, you know, keep him down on the farm. So he tried to make his life and his surroundings and everything as beautiful and as unstressful as possible. And he goes on to say, he said, a white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I did not once come down from that palace. You could use your imagination here. <laughs> but then he goes on. So he's a prince. He's, he's upper class. He lives a quite um, entitled life. But he goes on to say, he says, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me, when an untaught, ordinary person, himself subject to aging, not beyond aging, sees another who is aged, he is horrified, humiliated, disgusted, oblivious to himself that he or she too is subject to aging. If I, who am, who, am, who am subject to aging, not beyond aging, were to be horrified, humiliated, disgusted on seeing another person who is aged, that would not be fitting for me. And as I noticed this, the typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away the typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. And even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me when an untaught ordinary person, herself subject to illness, not beyond illness, sees another who is ill, she is horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious to herself that she too is subject to illness. If I, who am subject to illness, not beyond illness, were to be horrified, humiliated, disgusted on seeing another person who is ill, that would not be fitting for me. As I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. And he continues, he continues to describe this dropping away of his intoxication. Even though I was endowed with such fortune, total refinement, the thought occurred to me, the contemplation, when an untaught ordinary person, subject to death, not beyond death, sees another who is dead, they are horrified, humiliated, disgusted, oblivious, that they too are subject to death. If I, who am subject to death, not beyond death, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is dead, that would not be fitting for me. 
And as I notice this, the living person's intoxication with life entirely dropped away. So this is the basis, or at least in the mythology of the Buddha, this is the basis for him um, turning towards awakening, seeking freedom, seeking liberation, seeking what's beyond youth or health or life. This is the context that really set the stage for his enlightenment. And it's important to to notice how you hear this, right? The intoxication with youth, the intoxication with health, the intoxication with life. Because it's very clear that he doesn't say we shouldn't uh, enjoy youth or appreciate health or love life. He doesn't say that at all. What he points us to is the intoxication, the intoxication that he let go of. And if you look up the word intoxication, it it comes from the the same root as toxic, meaning poison or impure, or in in more uh, contemplative language, not seeing clearly that one's understanding is distorted or obscured in some way, veiled in some way, that there's a misunderstanding. And the intoxication he pointed points to, whether it, we think of it as intoxication or inebriation, or, is that we're intoxicated with permanence. We believe that our youth will last forever and that our health will not fail us. We fail to see the fragility, the reality of our fragility or the truth of the um, passing naturally, quite naturally of youth or the fact that life ends. Even though we know these things intellectually, there's a way that we're intoxicated by them. We, there's some belief, sometimes conscious, but often unconscious, that youth should stay or we should always be healthy or we really don't want to look at death. We don't want to see the truth of our mortality. And what's paradoxical here is all of this is quite natural. That youth turns to middle age and middle age turns to old age is just natural. Or that health fails us is actually natural. Nothing. Nothing that has uh, this level of sentience, this level of... um, I don't know how to quite say it, complicated biological, you know, consistency is also subject to illness. And of course, all of life is subject to death. All of life. It's not actually a problem in any way, shape, or form, really. It may be sad, but it's, there's no mistake here. In fact, if you think about like, you know, that our life, we have different developmental tasks, you know, as a child or a teenager and as a young adult or in their 20s or 30s or 40s as different tasks. One thing I can assure you, death is one developmental task you will not fail at. Okay, that's the good news. There is no human being who's failed at dying yet so far in the history of the planet. (laughs) so the Buddha was able to through his contemplation let go release the intoxication with permanence 
And then intoxication, the opposite of intoxication in Buddhism is not exactly sobriety, although it includes some of the qualities of sobriety, the clarity, the clear seeing of sobriety, the clear headedness in that way. But the opposite of intoxication is a presence that's rooted in reality, that's grounded in the way things are that is not intoxicated with some idea, some imagining, some fantasy about reality. But it is rooted in the way things are. It is actually an expression of the way things are. We itself are a living expression of impermanence. It's not even something we have to get the understanding of impermanence. We are impermanent. Every cell in our body is impermanent. Every thought we have. How many thoughts did you have today? Are they permanent? They might feel that way once, you know, a little bit when you're, they're going over and over, but... So this context sets a basis for the Buddha's teaching of mindfulness. That this is the basis that he then went and practiced and sat down exactly in the way we sat down today. Sat down, sat with his body and his breathing and ultimately was enlightened. And so I want to speak more specifically to continue our exploration of the body about the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body. And to look at how mindfulness of the body, um, what are the qualities it brings, and how does it support awakening. And if you read the text on mindfulness, if you look carefully, there are really three qualities that mindfulness brings. First of all, it brings awareness. It brings a, a capacity to pay attention. It begins to highlight something we already have here, but we may, may not have been paying attention to, which is awareness itself. That everything we know is based on this awareness that is already here. You wouldn't know my words, my image. You wouldn't know what you were feeling. You wouldn't know your thoughts. You wouldn't know your reaction. You wouldn't know your energy, your body, if there wasn't awareness. And we start to see that this awareness has different capabilities, different ways that it can be utilized in the service of awakening and recognizing itself, recognizing the awareness itself. This, what the Buddha talked about as this luminous mind. Luminous mind. He said, luminous is this mind. So we start to cultivate an awareness. We start to cultivate embodiment. And we start to cultivate a disidentification from the body. And there's a beautiful paradox here of embodiment and non-identification or disidentification. And so the first teachings combine awareness and mindfulness. He says, pay attention. Pay attention to the posture. Pay attention to your body. Actually, the way the words that he uses, contemplate the body in the body. Contemplate. And as I said last night, contemplate. Contemplum. As if in a temple. And by paying attention in this way, we find our temple. And really, you know, in some sense, spirit rock is our temple. But in a much more immediate sense, our body is our temple. This is the temple of our practice. This is the sacred place of our practice. This human form, this human awakeness, aliveness. 
And so the Buddha says, pay attention to the posture and the postures of the body, the form of the body, the shape. And of course, the paying attention isn't from a distance. This is, the awareness is, saturates our body and we know the form because we feel the form. We're not just thinking the form. There's actually a shape here. And the shape has both um, a physicality to it and there's an energetic shape. There's a a liveness that's here. And sometimes the shape is very um, much the outer form. Or sometimes you can close your eyes and the shape is shapeless. You can feel that there's something here, there's a body here, there's a liveness here, there's energy here. But actually it doesn't conform to any shape. And they're both true. And then he asks us to mind the breathing. Mind the breathing, which was the main practice he did on the night of his enlightenment. He was mindful of the breath. And the same principles apply, not from a distance, not from far away, but being in, letting the, the awareness, the consciousness permeate, um, saturate, soak into um, the breath itself. So there's almost no, you can't find a real difference between the breath and what's knowing the breath. We know the breath because we are the breath at a certain point. Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes first we're here and the breath is here. And then as we start getting closer, as we get quieter, as we get more intimate with the breath, it becomes the totality of our experience at times. And the breath is a beautiful, beautiful gift to us while we're alive. And and a beautiful gift not to be taken for granted. One of my little tricks when I'm meditating, when I go on retreat, is I sit for a while and I'm minding the breath for a while. And then when I actually start to get quiet, I'll say to myself, it's a little coaching, inner coaching, I'll say, okay, Eugene, you don't know what a breath is. And then feel that next experience of what we call breath. Because even the word gets in the way of what a breath actually is. Remember, the word body is not actually what we're experiencing. It's, it's just a concept. It's a word. It's a pointer towards something that is not a concept. The word is never the thing itself. We're using a lot of words, and they're really good. They're really skillful. But they're not the thing itself. And mindfulness begins to allow us to experience ourselves not as a thing, not as a Eugene, not as a body, not as a man, not as a breath, but all those things as a living reality, a mysteriously beautiful living reality that's sitting right in your seat and is here for you to discover and is why you're here to discover that living reality. And the trajectory as one starts to practice, one at least in the formal teachings of mindfulness of the body, is the Buddha goes from the breathing and the posture, and then he goes to the elements, the four elements. So he keeps refining um, the mindfulness so that it's simpler and simpler in a certain way. And so instead of thinking even in terms of breath or body, you start to, you start to know experience in t- just in terms of its fundamental or elemental nature, that it's hot or cold, that it's moving or still, um, that it's um, fluid or um, dense, Here's a way we could play with this. Take a look at your hand, and we'll move this a little way to look at the difference between the conceptual and non-conceptual. To look at your hand and see all the things you know about your hand, right? All the history of your hand and the, and the skin and the bones and the blood and the tendons and the ligaments and the 
lines and the nails and the flesh and the muscle. Right? We know a lot about the hand. Now leaving the hand just as it is, shut your eyes and simply feel that experience we call a hand. Letting go of everything you know about a hand. Without even moving it, just feel it. What do you become aware of then, anybody? You can speak now. Anybody, what do you notice? Air flow against skin. So air, the air element. Heat. Pardon? Heat. Heat, the fire element. Pulsation. Pulsation might be the um, um, part of, actually, pulsation usually has to do with the fluidity. The water element. Anybody notice heaviness or lightness? The earth element. And of course, even those words are a little bit of an addition to that fundamental experience. So the Buddha is asking us to live in this body in a different way to come into this body in a different way, to experience your body, not from the outside, but from the inside of the body. Direct experience. And that, that phrase is emphasized over and over again in Buddhism. Direct experience, experience here and now. The way things are. The way things are is not an idea about things. It's the direct experience and apprehension of the way things are, of reality, the way it is. And it's why the breath is so beautiful, because the breath teaches us how to be with the breath the way it is, not the way we want it or think it should be, but actually that we learn. It trains us to be mindful, to attune, to be intimate with it, whether it's long or short or rough or smooth or tight or open. And of course, there's myriad other benefits. One of the main benefits being um, that it brings um, samadhi. The word samadhi is often translated as concentration, which is a somewhat limited understanding of the word samadhi. It would include concentration, being collected, centered, composed. That samadhi is one of the uh, grounds for awakening. It's one of the fundamental supports for awakening. Is first of all discovering a sense of composure, and then the joy that that brings, the pleasure, and this is considered the skillful pleasure to be found in meditation, the pleasure of samadhi, the pleasure of being connected, the pleasure of being whole, of having body and mind as one. And that, again, sets the stage for awakening. It's not awakening itself. Although it feels, it feels really good. And, and your enjoyment of it, and you can notice this. I'll say it somewhere in the instructions, but you can know when actually when you find that there's pleasure in the body, in the yoga, or after the yoga, or pleasure in the breathing as you get quiet, or pleasure in the walking as you get composed, include the pleasure, notice the pleasure. Um, Soak in, sink into the pleasure, and let the pleasure take you. Devote yourself even to the pleasure, as long as it's here. And it will deepen your samadhi. It's one of the factors that will deepen your concentration. And the Buddha continues, he goes on, after he talks about posture and breath and the elements, he goes on to a section called Full Awareness. He says, A practitioner is one who acts in full awareness when going forward 
returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead, looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing robes and carrying a bowl, who acts in, because he's speaking to the monks and nuns, um, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food, tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling down, waking up, talking, and keeping silence. And this is all mindfulness of the body. So even talking and keeping silent like you're doing now, this is a mindfulness of the the body practice. And of course, there's some areas that you can really begin to focus on that are not just in the meditation hall. As we said, every act becomes a meditation. Every act asks for your presence, your wakefulness. Not being lost in the past or the future, but being here now. Being with things as they are now. And letting the body ground you in that real-time lived experience here and now. And this is embodiment from a Buddhist perspective. This is, uh, this is from Miranda Shaw, who wrote a really fascinating book called Passionate Enlightenment. And she talks about embodiment is understood not to be a soul in a body, but rather, and this is a little dense, but let me throw it at you anyways. She says, rather, it's a multi-layered mind-body continuum of corporality, affectivity, cognitivity, uh, and spirituality, whose layers are subtly interwoven and mutually interactive. She's describing this multi-layered process that's here, that's alive, that is cognitive and affective and corporal, physical, and spiritual, all at the same time. This is what's here now. This non-self is seen not as a bounded or static entity, but as a site of a host of energies and inner winds, flames, disillusions and melting, flowing, that can bring about dramatic transformations in embodied experience and provide a bridge between humanity and divinity. One of Joseph Goldstein's teachers, Munindraji, would point to you and he would say, the whole Dharma is sitting here. The whole Dharma is sitting in your seat. And it's not far away. (laughs) It's closer than close. It's already right here. Can we pay attention? Can we relax? Can we allow the Dharma to reveal itself as an embodied wakefulness? So the first teaching is about embodiment, or the first teachings in mindfulness of the body. And then the Buddha goes on, and the second teaching is all about disidentification. It's such an interesting paradox. But it's an important paradox to contemplate because we're, we're, we're um, supporting, encouraging, practicing embodiment, but not embodiment as attachment. Embodiment as actually the doorway to let go. One of my teachers put it this way. He said, attachment to, the, to our body is inversely proportionate to not being fully in our body. That it's actually our distance from our body that creates the attachment. That we're, when we're fully in our body, there's, there's, no, there's no way to be attached because there's no one to be attached because body and mind are not split. Reality is not split. Thich Nhat Hanh puts it a little differently. It's worth hearing. 
um, because it's something we'll work with all throughout our meditative practice. He says, he talks about observing the body in the body. He uses the word observing a lot to talk about Vipassana. He says, I wish to say something about the expression observing the body in the body, observing the feelings in the feelings, observing the mind in the mind, etc. The key to observation meditation is that the subject of the observation and the object of the observation not be regarded as two separate things. A scientist might try to separate him or herself from the object he or she is observing and measuring, but students of meditation have to remove the boundary between subject and object. When we observe something, we are that thing. Non-duality is the key word. We do not stand outside our own body like an independent observer but we identify with the object being observed, meaning we become one with the object being observed. This is the only path that can lead us to the penetration and direct experience of reality. That we begin to heal the division, the split, the idea that there's somebody here and a body over here or somebody here and a feeling over here, but that we start to see the wholeness, the isness, we could say, of what's here. And so the movement, the way the Buddha, first of all, begins to deal with it in terms of mindfulness of the body is he begins to deconstruct our identification with the body. And he has people in the mindfulness of the body section, you go through the different parts of the body to really pay attention to the nails, the skin, the blood, the ligaments, the bones, the different organs, what's inside the different organs, right? Let's include everything, outer surface, the innermost stuff. Where do you find yourself in all of this? That idea that there's somebody here as a static entity, as Miranda Shaw said. We have this idea there's a static entity, me. And, but the Buddha says, well, let's look really carefully. Are you your toenails? Is that, is that you? Or your spleen? Is that you? Or, I mean, he gets really down with it, too. I'm not going to go there with you totally. You, again, you can use your imagination, which, you know, which part is you? Is it your teeth? Is that you? You know that's not you, because they start coming out pretty early. Right? Maybe it's your underarm hair. Is that you? that we want to begin to not to push the body away or not to actually we want to be fully here in this experience but really see the nature of it the way things are not be intoxicated with some idea of what's here and so you'll, you'll hear there's some, some poetry in Buddhism about this disidentification. This is a famous poem from Ambapali, who was a renowned courtesan at the time of the Buddha. And the Buddha actually took a lot of flack because he was quite good friends with Ambapali. Um, but after she retired from her profession, she became a disciple and was awakened. And she wrote a poem. She said, Once my hair was black, like the color of bees alive, curly. Now it is dry, like bark fibers of hemp. I'm getting old. This is true. I tell you the truth. Covered with flowers, my head was fragrant as a perfume box. Now, because of old age, it smells like dog's fur. My nose was a delicate peak. Now it's a long pepper. The scarecrow is telling the truth. Of course, the truth she's describing is the truth of impermanence and change. My hands were gorgeous. They used to be 
covered with signet rings, decorated with gold. Now they are like onions and radishes. This is true, I tell you. My breasts look great, round, swelling, close together, lofty. Now they hang down like waterless water bags. My body used to be as shiny as a sheet of gold. Now it is covered with fine wrinkles. My thighs, and this was once considered a compliment, look like elephant's tusks. I swear I'm telling the truth. Now they're like stalks of bamboo. I had the body of a queen. Now an old house. Plaster falling off. Sad, but true. And of course I read this and somebody who wanted to help me in my Dharma talk wrote a complimentary version for the males. This is from, and I like to mention her name. She, I promised I'd mention her name when she gave This is from Melanie LaForce. He wrote, when I was young, my golden mane of hair cascaded gracefully to my shoulders and women tenderly caressed my tresses and curls. Now the remnant is gray and wirely, wire, wiry, a bald patch shining in the sun. I wear a hat a lot. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> when I was young, my beard was thick and brown. Now my beard is like pig bristles, patchy, like an old gray sweater. My belly was flat, it's true, with rippling muscles when I was young. The women flirted with me at the beach, an abdominal wonder. Now my belly is round, sagging, like a basketball with no air. I'm going to edit some of this, but... um, (laughs) I was known for being the biggest and the best. It's actually kind of funny because this is a little aside, but there is a description. Part of the way you know a Buddha is that of the 32 parts of the body. And and one of the the things they talk about is a kind of uh, um, very manly genitalia. So here she she wrote, I was known for being the biggest and the best. Now my penis is a stump, flaccid, a lonely snake searching for a home when it has the energy to move at all. (laughs) Sad, but true. So the Buddha asks us to begin to look very carefully at what we're identified with, what we're taking to be this static entity, me. And if we look carefully, it's not this body. We're definitely related to this body in some way, shape, and form, clearly. And it's really, you know, it's a beautiful temple but we may not have to be identified with it in the way we have been. And so he, first of all, goes through the different parts of the body. And then the last, I believe, five contemplations in mind, in the, or nine contemplations in the mindfulness of the body section are all contemplations on the impermanence of the body from the perspective of death. They're called the charnel ground contemplations. And it asks us to look at what happens to a body. And he starts a body one day dead, and three days dead, and one week dead, and three weeks dead, and one month dead, and three months, and he goes on. And that was the practice. And to this day, there are monks, nuns, who literally go to charnel grounds in Asia and sit where the bodies, and it's really the bodies of the poor people who can't afford to be cremated, they're just left there, and you watch what happens to them. And, you know, it's often people feel like, oh, this is really morbid, or it's really gross, but actually, as I said before, this is just normal. I mean, that's actually the good news, is it's just normal. It's normal that we 
are impermanent. It's normal that living things die. It's not a mistake. It's not we're doing something wrong. It doesn't mean we won't grieve. It doesn't mean we won't miss those we love. We may even love them even more, feel that love more acutely, more sensitively, more vulnerable, vulnerably. It might be more clear how much we love life. But it's not something wrong. And, that, and what the Buddha suggests is if we can come into alignment with the way things are, we will begin the process of awakening, of enlightenment. And this level of clarity, this level of looking, this, this partly it means there's a certain level of maturity that we're going to take on, that we're willing to look life right in the face. And really that means to look life in the face means to look death in the face, to see the truth of impermanence. But that level of clarity calls for a tremendous amount of compassion and kindness. To see, like just like in the yoga, how Ada says, really the kindness is to stay attuned to what your body can do and where you're at right now. And then to stay attuned tomorrow to see, oh, maybe your body can do a little more, or maybe it's different tomorrow, maybe it's tighter and you'll do a little less. The same is true in Dharma practice. The kindness is to really see what what you can open to, what works for you, and then work, play at that edge. And to not have some idea you have to impose any of these ideas on you, because you don't. But just be curious or be open to the way things are. And because often sometimes people will strive or push or get very tight in terms of practicing, especially on, a, on this style of retreat. Because we're going to ask you to practice every moment, knowing that you'll, there'll be a million moments that you kind of won't be here or you'll get lost in your thought or you'll forget or you'll say, oh, I've had it. It's all Okay. There's no, there's, there's no judgment in it. If you read the Buddha's teaching of mindfulness, one of the beautiful things is there's absolutely no judgment. He says a practitioner knows. practitioner knows if they're awake or they're asleep. A practitioner knows if they're concentrated or unconcentrated. A practitioner knows if their mind is full of lust or if there is no lust, is full of aggression or no aggression. The practitioner knows. He never makes a judgment. He just points out that we want to pay attention to whatever's here and then see how that can self-liberate with mindfulness. And especially because we're emphasizing the body on this retreat, sometimes people push their bodies very hard, can be very... You know, I'm, I don't even have to explain, do I? Have you, have you all seen yourselves do it in yoga at times? Like, you know, certain bodies, usually the teacher's body, does those yoga things really, really well, right? And it's great. It's like, wow, I want my body to do that. My body doesn't do what the teacher's body does generally. Um, but it doesn't mean that I have to push it past w- what what is appropriate, what is attuned, what is, what is um, um, the actual living edge for me. I'll read you a poem. Anna Swer, her relationship to her body. She says, I say to my body, you carcass. <laughs> I say, you carcass, crated, Nailed down, deaf and blind like a padlock. I should beat you till you scream. Starve you for 40 days. Hang you over the highest abyss in the world. Perhaps then a window in you would open. On everything I feel exists. On everything that is closed to me. I say to my body, you carcass. You are afraid of pain and hunger. You are afraid of the abyss. You deaf, blind carcass, I say, and I spit at the mirror. 
This is not the attitude we're cultivating. <laughs> but you may have felt, <laughs> thank goodness, <laughs> you didn't know where I was going with that. <laughs> but you may have felt that inner attitude at times, and so we want to we wanna unplug that. Be as Be very kind to your body, both in the yoga, in the sitting. Stay with, see where the edge is, because it's fun to play on the edge. But the harshness, the judgment, the criticism, the critique, the idea that you have to force enlightenment will only delay your enlightenment another 20 lifetimes. So the last thing that I'll speak to tonight is woven in the teaching of the Satipatthana Sutta, which I'm, I've been speaking about, the foundations of mindfulness. The Buddha gives the contemplation, mindfulness of the body, and then the insight, and then the four postures, and then the insight, and the full awareness, and then the insight, and the bodily parts, and then the insight. And then the charnel ground contemplations, and then the insight. What is the insight that the Buddha is giving us? The insight is part of the mindfulness. In this way, one abides contemplating the body as a body. It's sometimes it's translated in a body, as a body. Contemplating the body as, in, as a body internally. One abides contemplating the body as a body externally, right? Just just looking, seeing, oh, this is a body, that there's a body here. It's actually part of the contemplation. Contemplating the body and the body both internally and externally, contemplating the body and the body, its nature of arising, or contemplating the, bo- the body in its nature of vanishing that it appears and disappears. Each moment appears and disappears. There is no static entity here. There is this moment and this moment and this moment, the body appearing and disappearing. I remember a yogi on a long retreat talking about moving her arm and she said, oh, it was like a thousand arms. All of a sudden, it's like those images you sometimes see of a thousand-armed Buddha. Because if we really see clearly, there's not an arm moving. There's a moment and a moment and a moment and a moment. There's no static entity. And he says, one abides contemplating the body in its nature of vanishing, or abides contemplating the body in its nature of arising and vanishing, or else mindfulness of there is a body, just the simplicity of feeling our body, that there is a body, is simply established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. Just feeling your body, just that. And one abides, and here's the Here's the little punchline in the whole insight. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu, a practitioner, abides contemplating the body as a body. One contemplates it practicing with the body as a body, in a body, independent, not clinging to anything in this world independent from our ideas, independent from our beliefs, independent from our history, independent from some imagined future, independent for a moment, here, now. I'll end with a quote from my Teachers, teachers, teacher, Ajahn Mun, who was a great Thai forest master in the last century. And he's speaking to us. He says, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Never allow the mind to desert the body. 
Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. See the impermanence, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When its true nature is seen, is understood fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. Let's sit together for a moment, please. true nature of the body is apprehended fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the luminosity of mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. Thank you for your kind attention. This talk was given by Eugene Cash at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on December 6, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma.